Hello and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro, and I'm a partner in the Private Equity and M&A Group here at Steik Manali. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome our special guests, Lars Hankins, who is the Managing Director of Quadrivium Capital Partners, and Jamie Pridham, who's a Director at Quadrivium Capital Partners. Lars, Jamie, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Lars, Jamie, we always start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and also in your case, a little bit about Quadrivium. So we'll start there. If I'd love to learn more about both your own histories and the history of Quadrivium. Perfect. So Lars Hampkins, born and raised in Germany. And I came to Canada about 25, 26 years ago in my very early 30s. Got outsmarted by my Canadian wife. That's why I'm here and she's not there. We've got three adult children who've grown up and are in different places in this country and in the world at this very moment. Started my career in Germany with Arthur Anderson in their public accounting practice. So I'm an accountant by trade and worked there in the late 90s. Then we moved to Canada and I joined Arthur Anderson in Canada, worked in their risk management group for four years. And when I left Anderson, there was just about a half a year ago until that ship sank. <laughs> so I left in 2001, became a CFO in two technology companies that we sold. And at the end of 2006, after we sold the second tech firm, I started a private equity kind of M&A advisory firm with three other partners called Blackmore Partners. We were like half in Chicago, half in Toronto. That was in, at the end of 2006 started with a bang was a, an interesting business model but when the financial markets collapsed in 2007-8 we kind of all went into different directions and i started quadrivium in 2009 with the idea of kind of teeing up larger private equity deals with operating partners in hand in canada and that's what we did with blackmore in the u.s found out pretty quickly that that's not a good strategy because A, there are not a lot of big companies in Canada really for private equity and B, operators don't seem to be as flexible in terms of location as Americans tend to be. So I focused very quickly on the middle market and specifically on the lower end of the middle market and got into that around 2010. So rather early compared to a lot of players in the market today. The first iteration of my business really was a one-man show where I was an advisor, helped two individuals buy a trucking company, and we did four add-on acquisitions. They needed a CFO. I became their CFO for several years and really started my own full-fledged deal business in around 2014-15. And it started slowly. We did one deal in 15, one in 16, one in 17, one in 18. Jamie joined me around that time and that accelerated things. And we've done two deals per year since. So since 2015, we've acquired 14 businesses and they all fall into the small, medium enterprise kind of size category. And 11 of those are active today. We exited two and we merged another two. That's how 14 became 11. And we're currently in the process of acquiring three more. So that's where we're at. Jamie, a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Jamie Pridham. I'm from Toronto originally. Went out east to do my undergrad at Dalhousie University and then launched my career here in Toronto, working in executive search as a headhunter. Did that for a few years, decided to go back to school, did an MBA at U of T at the Rotman School and used that as sort of a launch pad into a job in investment banking. I joined one of the big five Canadian banks and spent some time working in their diversified industries group and then ultimately in their equity capital markets group. Enjoyed my time working there, but always in the back of my mind, wanted to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. 
but I just wasn't really sure what form that was going to take. And so I met Lars through networking and I learned about Quadrivium doing deals in the lower middle market and acquiring small and medium sized enterprises. And it just seemed like a, you know, a really interesting, more entrepreneurial form of private equity. And it also appeared to be a bit of an underserved part of the market. And so it just looked like there was a fair amount of opportunity and it was appealing to me. It was also kind of a unique fit with my experience at the time, because there's a big search component in what we do here, searching for target companies, searching for operating partners to work with on our deals. There's obviously, you know, the deal component, the M&A piece execution, and then the equity capital raise. And that's something that we're increasingly spending time thinking about as we're looking to grow our existing group companies. So I joined, as Lars mentioned, sort of end of 2017, early 2018. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun building this business. Jamie Lars, if I could take a step back just to kind of give the full picture of uh, Quadrivium, it, you know, 14 companies, you said, maybe a little bit about the sweet spot and the nature of the type of businesses, just so our audience gets a flavor. I think it's an amazing story, what you've done. And I, I expect a lot of people probably haven't heard about this amazing story. So it'd be great to kind of give a little bit of a snapshot. If you could, I know it's hard to do it a short period of time, but yeah. just a, a little bit about the portfolio, the size of companies you look for. You had mentioned that you have an investor base you've developed over the years. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit about that, just to kind of flesh out that story a little bit. So in terms of sweet spot size, I would say is typically in the one to three million dollar EBITDA range, but it doesn't mean we can't do bigger and it doesn't mean we don't want to go smaller if the right company comes on our radar. In terms of industry focus, I think that's one of the areas where we are probably different from many other investors and a bit unique in our approach, which is that we always partner with an operator right from the beginning. And we then go out and find a company that is well suited for that operator and rather than the other way around. You know, a lot of private equity investors are trying to find good businesses and then they're solving for the operator question or problem. For us, it's the other way around. And so when you look at the companies that we've bought over the last seven, eight years, it's really a very broad range of industries and sectors that we are in because those sectors are unique to the individuals we've partnered with. And so you've got B2C, lots of B2B, light manufacturing services, healthcare, a lot of different sectors, really. But the common theme for us has been that we always start partnering with an operator finding the right company and then doing a transaction. And it's also an interesting value proposition for the sellers because they don't have a buyer who sits across the table who's basically in need of that operator or that owner to stay on for an extended period of time for transition. We can orchestrate very smooth ownership and management transitions with that model. Jamie, can I ask if given the operator, the operator-driven focus, you know, other people would say, I go looking for deals. In your case, do you go out looking for operators who want to do deals? Is your BD, if you want to call it, your, your business development strategy as much focused on finding good operators as it is on finding good deals? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. You know, it, it's an ecosystem and we like to have a presence with all the various players in the ecosystem, whether it's the target companies, the operators, the lenders, the investors, what have you. I'd say we increasingly are spending more time looking for companies first and operators later, but you know, just the segment of the market that we're in and on the lower end of the middle market, most of the companies that we come across are owner operated. And so you need deal expertise and capital, but typically, or at least often have to solve for the operating side. And, you know, it's a critical piece, we think, to being successful in these deals. And so there's a combination of BD with operators 
Sometimes it's, you know, many years, these relationships until someone's ready to take the jump. It's also the business development around target companies, which again, you know, oftentimes the timing is not right. And so the nice thing, you know, unlike a search fund that's looking to do that one deal, we oftentimes, you know, many of our deals are with companies that we met years prior who they weren't quite ready at that time. And you kind of foster the relationship over a longer time period. And then when the time's right, you connect the dots with the business and the operator, and hopefully you can get a good deal done. Now, without giving away your secret sauce, and I'll understand if you uh, don't want to, obviously you're looking for a certain skill set in your operators. It's a key part of your thesis to have an operator who could drive you know, the success of the platform. Can I ask you what you're looking for? You don't, you can tell me to stay away from the secret sauce, but what are you looking for in an operator when you're trying to partner? What's the drivers for you in terms of that operator relationship? You know, I, I wish there was a secret sauce in that. It's actually really difficult to solve for that. You know, a lot of it is gut instinct. So when Jamie says we are kind of doing BD in both directions, most of the operators we have worked with over the last seven, eight years were word of mouth referrals from our network. And they are individuals who came strongly recommended from people we know. And that in itself, to me, that endorsement always meant a lot, right? So making sure that the operator checks all the boxes is probably really hard. But what we can do and what we do do is that, and I think that's unique with our approach as well, is that we truly partner with our operators. They will have real skin in the game and we don't have situations where they are incentivized differently than we are. So whatever upside we structure into a deal, they share with us. I mean, they're all smart, they're experienced. They have proven that they're good executives, often in larger environments. But it's that willingness to become entrepreneurial, that willingness to take risk and move into this entrepreneurial world. You really need to figure that out during several conversations and beers before you make sure that you want to partner with that individual. Well, there's no secret sauce, Mario. It's, it's, it's a lot of intuition and just trying to read people and trusting that people who are referring these individuals to us, they do that because they know what we do and they do that because they know the other person think there is something there, you know, so. And if I can ask, I mean, you know, obviously a key part of your success has been the ability to raise capital. I mean, you've been doing this now for you know, about a decade and I know bit about your structure. You have a lot of what I would call loyal investors, people who believed in you who've kind of come along for the ride. Can you tell us a little bit about your investor base? Is it institutional? Is it individuals, entrepreneurial type capital? Uh, I know it's the world has changed. It's a lot easier to raise capital now than it was 10 years ago. And I remember 10 years ago, it would have been super hard in the early days for you to raise that capital. But you know, you not only have done it, but you mm -hmm. succeeded doing it. So we wanted to get a flavor from your perspective on the, the nature of your investor base and what makes it unique. Yeah, so it's no institutional investors. It's all retail, I guess, you know, individuals, high net worth, individual accredited investor types. We like the fact that we don't want to have a huge cap table with a ton of different investors, but we also don't want to have one investor that has a majority position in the deals. And so you're trying to get maybe mid-size, five to 10 investors in a deal. Ideally, some folks who understand small, medium-sized business, maybe have some industry expertise that they can lend in the deal and, and maybe would sit on the board as well and, and give us some advice that way. That's a perfect type investor for us. The way we've done our deals up till now has been basically a bunch of individual platform investments. There have been some add-ons, but for the most part, they're separate platforms and there's overlap in the investor network, but no two deals have the exact same investor group. And I think there's pros and cons to that. 
I think, you know, from here to take the business to the next level, we might need to spend some time thinking about how to tap into bigger chunks of equity to do a little bit more, but to get here, it's been, you know, deal by deal capital raises. And fortunately we've had successes along the way and, and the returns have been positive. And so we have folks who are keen to in, invest in subsequent deals. And Jamie Larson, what's interesting about your model is, you know, sometimes you talk about the, the classic private equity model where you hold for four or five years, six, and then you sell, but you have portfolio companies that you've held for longer than that and really no intention to sell. And can I answer that strategy? I mean, obviously it's a, a more long-term kind of cash flow, flash flow distribution type model, but tell us a little bit of what drives that part of your business and why you're doing it that way, if I can ask. Yeah. Well, there are benefits to both. You know, when you sell after, let's say, four or five years, it's easier to drive stronger investor returns, but then you need to reload and buy new companies. The reality of our world is that the multiples that our companies garner both on the in and the out are very reasonable. So you've got a company that's generating, let's say, $2 million worth of EBITDA. That's a million five of free cash to shareholders every year, right? And so, so you ask yourself all the time, is it worthwhile selling a business like that for four and a half times EBITDA, right? And so we are perfectly happy just holding on and then managing these companies and helping the operators be successful because it's a constant cash generation that our shareholders and ourselves enjoy, right? So, but if there's an opportunistic sell, we will certainly react to it. And in some cases, we, for example, we are in the process of exiting one of our businesses and it's the function where the operator whom we partnered with, for him, it was kind of the last his last gig that he wanted to take on and he's now nearing retirement age. And so we decided together to sell the business. But generally speaking, we don't have any timelines like a formal fund would have, you know, where the fund just has a limited lifespan and we don't have any of that. So it's really on a case-by-case -case basis we assess. And so far, you know, we exited two, as I said, and everything else is ongoing. And I don't really foresee that we will be super active sellers. And just maybe one addition to that, you know, one interesting dynamic that, that we see on some of our deals, particularly some of the smaller ones, you know, in a leveraged buyout, if there's not a lot of growth happening in the early years, you're at peak leverage and so much of your time is focused on just making sure you're staying on side covenant and, and you're paying down that debt. And so it doesn't always leave a lot of excess cash flow to really grow the business. But once you get out to, you know, years three, four, five, what have you, oftentimes you're in a situation where you've done a lot of heavy lifting to put in systems and processes in order to give the business the opportunity to grow. And sure, you might be five years into your investment thesis and there might be a nice return for your investors, but if there's a lot of runway to grow and now you've got capital to really make it happen, you know, we always, I guess, step back and assess what's the best use of our capital at that point in time. And if do we want an exit or do we see another good return ahead of us with the business? So up until now, for the most part, it's been a longer term growth play once we delever, but you know, we're opportunistic as well. Jamie Lawrence, just as a follow up to that, you don't have any outside dates for any of that. You could, you could hold these things for as long as you like. Your documents don't have any outside dates. So, Correct. So, so they're flexible, right? Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't spend a bit of taking advantage of your knowledge over the last 10 years of doing these deals. I mean, you know, so much has changed in our marketplace when it comes to these type of deals. You were probably, you know, one of the early movers in terms of doing these deals in these kind of sole purpose vehicles and doing multiple deals. I want to get a sense from you of where you kind of see this market right now in terms of you're out there, you're seeing what the market is doing. What's your 
perspective on how our marketplace is in terms of the players and who's active and vis-a-vis where you were 10 years ago when you were trying to make that first deal happen? Starting 10 years ago is actually a good starting point because around that time, there was talk in the media. There were surveys that were conducted by BDC, by FDIC, by different groups that all indicated that half of businesses that were owned by baby boomers would sell in the following five years. And that was 10 years ago, but that didn't happen. In, in that time frame. And then five years later, the same kind of studies were conducted and the same results were published. Everyone expected that all the baby boomers would pretty much sell their businesses. And that didn't really happen either. And you ask yourself, why is it that didn't really happen during that time frame? I don't have any empirical evidence, but my guess is that back then the market was really incredibly underserved. And it was underserved in terms of sell-side advice. It was underserved in terms of having viable buyers out there. You know, there were strategic buyers, but as you probably know, there are a lot of business owners who are leery opening their books to competitors. And so that didn't really materialize the companies that we are targeting were often too small for private equity firms to worry about. And so there just wasn't a broad buyer base out there. And in my mind, over the last decade or so, there's a real pent-up demand of owner-operated businesses that are looking for succession solution. And the landscape has changed in that there are so many more players out there today. You know, there are a lot of small private equity groups, search funds, groups like ours who are interested in the space. The sophistication on the buyer side has increased dramatically. The quality of the advice on the sell side has increased dramatically. So the marketplace has really, really changed. In my mind, a way more mature kind of space as it was 10 years ago. And, you know, for us, it brings more competition on the buy side, obviously. But I, I think overall, the ecosystem has improved. It's fabulous for existing business owners who don't have a succession in the family or inside their business, because there are a lot of really good groups out there who are targeting these companies. And the business owners just have a broader outlet to sell their businesses. So I, I view it as a very positive kind of like ecosystem change. Given that you are active market participants, you're obviously planning for the future. You really want to do more deals, so you're positive about the future. I, I always ask our guests the crystal ball question, where they see the market going. And I mean, you might have given it away already, the fact that you're working on a few LOIs. So you already kind of hinted at the, where you'd see the market going. But can you tell us where you see this market going? I mean, you live it every day. Where do you see it, given the context of higher interest rates and, you know, the feeling of a bit of a slowdown and all? Where do you see uh, this market going? Yeah, I mean, just maybe one comment in addition to what Lars was saying there, and, and I answer this a little bit, Mario. You know, I think, yes, there's more participants in the market today than there was in the past, but it's a big market. The Canadian economy is one where, Lars mentioned, there's not a lot of big private businesses, but there are just a ton of small and medium-sized businesses out there, and, and many of them are interesting companies. And so... I think there's more people out there looking for businesses. There's more brokers involved. I think it's lending credibility to this segment of the market. And I think it's a good thing that there's more awareness for investors. We're, we're able to partner up with some fantastic operators and, and we're always keen to meet folks who are maybe interested in leaving the corporate world and being an entrepreneur or being an entrepreneur, but want to be an equity owner and see this as a viable option because I think it can be an incredibly rewarding career and, and journey. You know, it's not easy being an entrepreneur and an owner operator, but there's some great rewards that come with a career like that. You know, in terms of the crystal ball, 
obviously very, very tough to answer. You know, I kind of feel like this segment of the market is a little bit insulated from some of the broader macro trends. We're not relying on a big IPO exit and we need to time the equity markets window in order to be able to do that. Valuations can fall apart in the public markets and it, it pretty much has no impact on what we're offering businesses to buy them at the lower end of the market. And so, you know, we're kind of doing deals at the same valuations now that we were five years ago and pretty close to where we were 10 years ago. So, so that's great. I think you need to perform and grow them in order to get an increased valuation when it comes time to exit. But I still think there's lots of opportunity out there with, with great businesses and you know, there's plenty of room in the space for other folks as well. And maybe just to add to what Jamie just said, when you look at these small, medium-sized businesses, in my view, not always, but often, they are not as much subject to macro trends and in general as bigger companies would be. Let's say you are a chemical distribution business and you have a half a point of market share in Canada. You know, even if the overall market goes down by 5%, if you execute well with your business and you grow it from a half a point to 0.75 market share, you can do extremely well. And so the emphasis for these small companies is way more on the quality of your execution than it is on how the macro world around you kind of changes. So that to me is one of the exciting aspects of what we do, because you really do have an impact on these small companies, right? It's how you run them, how you improve upon what you take over from amazing founders you know, who've often built these companies from nothing and how you can use that as a platform to make those businesses better. And as long as you make businesses better, I think you are set up to do well. Doesn't matter what the interest rates are and whatever else. Jamie Lars, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been great to learn more about Quadrivium and, and more about the role that you play in the market. Really appreciate you telling us your story and look forward to hearing more great things about the work that you do. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Mario. Thanks, Mario.